This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. Today's episode is sponsored by Organifi, the world's best superfoods company. Visit Organifi.com and use coupon code SOBERLIFE at checkout for 15% off your entire order. What it is. What's good, Brian? We're back in the studio. Yes, for another episode of The Sober Life Audio Audio Experience. Experience. What, what? Yeah, we are here. We're back in. We have a a special guest today, man. Who do we got, Roman? Well, we got the man, the myth, the legend, my mentor, close friend. He is the godfather to my daughter. He was my best man. He is extraordinary in every facet of life. He's someone I look up to. I'm very excited to have Ooh. him. We have Chris Bennett in the house. Appreciate it, guys. I'm really glad to be here today. Chris yeah. Bennett, welcome to the show. You guys have been blowing up. Yeah, we have. Yeah. It's exciting. Hey, hey yeah, I get to come in right in the right as you guys have blown up already. Not in the beginning. I know. Not where I'll look like an idiot. Yeah. And you guys have real famous folks on here, but right in the middle. Hey, it takes one or no one. Patience. (laughs) That's practicing patience right there. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. So um, before we, you know, start every, any episode with a guest, we always ask three very special questions, right? So are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. All right. Question number one. What is your vision? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> what is my vision? I mean, that, that changes pretty regularly, to be honest. I mean, I, I think for me, being a man in long-term recovery, I'm always looking at ways to not only improve myself, but improve really kind of the world around me. And obviously, as you guys both know, like I've gone into the world of addiction treatment and done a lot of things in that space. And right. I think my vision really is to have long-lasting positive impact on all the people around me. Um, right. Whether that's in the recovery community, whether that's professionally, friends, family. Um, but I mean, my, my long-term vision is to really kind of change the game when it comes to the way that we treat people for addiction. Right. Um, I want to transform the culture of addiction treatment. I want to give people a different experience when they go through treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I want to figure out like what's working and what's not and like continue to improve and innovate really the game. Word. And Why? Why do you want to do that? Why is that so special to you? I mean, for me, it's easy, right? So I grew up having some pretty pronounced kind of mental health-related issues, anxiety and ADHD, and no one could figure out what was really going on with me for a lot of years. And then I turned to substance use at a pretty young age, and I had a family who did everything in their power to help me and to hire people to help me and all this. Right. in my opinion, my humble opinion, they got some pretty bad advice. Mm. Um, they got pointed down some pretty wrong directions for someone like me. Yeah. Um, and so I've got a unique perspective of having spent from about 15 years old till 22 in and out of treatment centers, jails, military schools, wilderness programs, like just a variety of all these different kind of areas to try and help me. Right. Um, 
and I ended up getting sober for free in a room of guys where you put a dollar in a basket. Um, <laughs> and I felt like there was kind of a problem with that considering how much money my family had spent, how many lawyers right. were involved and all these mm. other things, you know? Um, and so for me, people who know me, this isn't a surprise. Like I walk around with a huge chip on my shoulder with the world in a lot of ways, but especially yeah. with the way that we try to help people that are suffering, mm. you know? Mm. So it's, it's from there. But obviously, like, I didn't get sober and say I was going to save the world. Mm-hmm. I actually right. got sober and was like, I don't want anything to do with, with that world. Yeah. Because I think it's total bullshit. Um, but fell into it, and then, you know, the rest is history. It's almost been a decade now. Damn. Damn. Word. Yeah. Love it. Well, uh, why don't we get into question number two? Yeah. What do you got? Chris, what do you love? What do you love? What do you love? What makes your little heart beat? Wow. I mean, first and foremost, and it's not to it's not to be corny, but like I start I start with my wife. Yeah, um, Ashley and I have a very unique relationship, being that <laughs> she was with me for three years before I got sober. Um, so we talk about living like three different lives together: one, me not sober, early recovery, which is a whole nother life, and right. then obviously kind of life past that. Um, so I always start there. I always talk about like her. I mean, realistically, she was the last person that was there for me. Um, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for her. Um, so I give her a whole lot of credit for putting up with my insanity yeah. for a long time. I mean, even into recovery. Right. Um, and even still today, to be real. Yeah. So, um, shout out Ashley. Yeah. So I always, no I always start there, but, but really, I mean, family and friends, to be honest with you, I mean, I, I have, I have so many people around me that like have cared for me, loved me, like been with me through all the bullshit and their good, t- good times, bad times, everything in between. So I, I that's the easiest thing for me, mm. you know, it's like to fall back on like the people that are around me and the people that care about me. Um, and so I got a lot of love for family and friends. Um, yeah. And dude. then I fucking love what I do. Mm. Yeah. At the end of the day. Dude, that's so important. I mean, I love working with people that are suffering yeah and i don't get as much direct kind of contact anymore due to like the roles that i'm in and things right. like that but there's nothing better to me than like looking at someone else who's suffering struggling and like i get it you know and yeah i've been sober a long time but like i i can look in someone's eye and i go i, I remember you know i know <laughs> what that's like i know the feeling yeah um and so at the end of the day like i wake up every single day and it's like I'm ready to roll. You know, there's no, right. there's no Mondays, Fridays. Like I'm not waiting for a specific day in the week for something to change. Like I get up. I love what I do. All Ooh. the goods, bads, ups, downs, challenges, struggles, everything in between. Um, but I would say those are three probably between Ashley, family, friends, and then really what I get to do for a living. Damn, Damn dude. Like okay. it, man. Question number three. What is one book that has greatly impacted or shaped your life? Whew. One book. Interestingly enough, I'm not a huge reader. Um, I actually listen to a ton of podcasts, which is really cool to be on a podcast and have done this a few times. Um, So I actually listen to a lot more podcasts than I do actually reading books. Um, Mm -hmm. The book that I've actually – and I read it recently, and shout out to Tommy Walker – um, yeah, who gave, Tommy. Who gave me who gave me this book. Um, it's The Art of Racing in the Rain. Um, and it's okay. actually, it's written from a dog's perspective on going through life, but understanding really everything that's going on, like within his family. And so it's this very like wise dog huh. who you get to see from like a puppy and he grows up and like he's like 
noticing what's going on in the world. But a lot of the book has to do with like an individual's resilience okay, and being able to like go through messed up times, difficult times, have tragedies happen, you know, a Mm. lot of grief, a lot of loss, like all this, but yet still like coming back and being able to pick yourself back up and work through it. And like the, the message long-term is like that when you do that, like there's always going to be something brighter on the other side, you know? Um, And so it's actually just something more that's in my mind right now. I mean, I've read some books over the years, but uh, that's the most recent one I've read and definitely uh, like really inspirational. And I'd, I'd recommend it to everybody. I like that word resilience. Yeah. It's a great word to describe many alcoholics and addicts (laughs) on both both sides. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. For sure. And and I'm not just talking about cockroaches here. (laughs) Yeah, I hear that. Right. Oh man. So Chris, give us a little background, uh, kind of about yourself, uh, kind of, kind of like a perspective for, for the listeners. What do you do? And then we can talk about what you're creating now. So sure. I mean, the, I'll try to keep it as short as possible. So I grew up in Northern Virginia. Um, word. And like I said earlier, like just grew up, like I never fit in um, and not from a perspective, like I had friends, I was an athlete. So like I was on teams and all these right. things, I, um, but I never was comfortable in my own skin. And that's, I can remember that from the youngest of ages. Um, I never understood what was really going on either. And I think that was a lot of the issue, like with anxiety in particular, like why did I feel so uncomfortable in situations? Mm. Why did I go through this? Why did I not feel comfortable going to school or interacting with folks or being in social situations and all these things? And, um, right. And so what happened was like at a pretty young age, 13 years old, like I got introduced to weed and alcohol on the same night. I, I got blackout drunk. I smoked weed. I took my pants off in the snow and (laughs) I went, I went back to my boy's house and I puked a huge pile of puke in the middle of his living room and I promptly passed out. And I woke up the next day and couldn't wait to do it again. Um, and so yeah. I, I'm one of the typical folks that from the first time I drank and used, I knew that this was my solution. Yeah. And I knew that I was going to be a drug addict and alcoholic. Like I didn't go through like this progressive process where at some point I recognized like it was immediate. So you knew, but did you understand what that meant? No, no, no. Yeah. Of course, right. of course not. I just knew for the first time I was like, oh. Oh, I'm okay. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm all right with who I am today, which is crazy. You didn't necessarily know the implications. No. No. Definitely not. I mean, at that age, I mean... Right. You're having fun, dude. Correct. Yeah. You know? And I mean, don't get me wrong, within probably two to three years, there were major problems, you know? So right. it wasn't like I lasted into my twenties or whatever it is. It happened pretty quickly. You know, okay. I, was, I was getting arrested. My parents were looking into treatment. You know, I had a an adolescent intervention where I was mm-hmm. handcuffed and hogtied in a Wendy's parking lot and taken to a wilderness program. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> you know, so like for me, it was balls to the wall right. really from the very beginning. Um, that really just progressed, you know? So, I mean, I, I always, I kind of joke about it, but it's also serious. Like I don't, I didn't really have an adolescence in a sense from, from the time I started using until, until I basically got sober. It was just a constant combination of like, in jail, in treatment, in right. a military school, in another school, expelled, suspended. Like it was just this constant process. And <clears throat> excuse me, I went out to California at 19 because I actually had this like year and a half long period where I could not stay out of a courtroom. <laughs> so I would like, I would finally get off for one thing, but then I get arrested again and right. I'd be back. Mm-hmm. And like it was this, and I got so overwhelmed with what was going on in Virginia that I got on an airplane to LAX and I never went home. 
Um, mm. And right. so for a while, it actually kind of worked out. Um, I like was working for the first time in my life and I was still using and drinking and all this, but like I had a job, I had a place to stay. Um, and then like the, the real short of it is just the last three years, a, a friend of mine was killed, which really kind of sparked like this downhill progression. Like I, I already didn't know how to deal with life. Um, <laughs> And was really pretty emotionally unstable for most of my life. But then when my when my buddy was killed, it was just like this high speed train to mm-hmm. either twenty five to life, uh, the grave or sobriety. What like, was that a big moment for you? And like the what happened part about getting you and getting you sober for good? You know, well for sure. I mean, that was in '05, and I got sober in early in early 2008. So there was still like a two and a half year period. This is where Ashley came into my life. And like for six months, she didn't know like yeah. that I had these problems. I was pretty good at like hiding it at that point. I didn't false advertising. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I didn't grow up with all these people either. <laughs> right. So there weren't like friends around who knew me since I was 15 or 12, you know, right. and like, yo, like look at this guy, you know, he's right. Yeah. You better be careful. Yeah, like yeah. I was on, I was at like a fresh scene and, um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's just like the combination of opiates and benzos, um, right. really took me to some extremely dark places. And I mean, part of my story is, is I always hustled cause I never, I never could like hold a job. I never mm-hmm. wanted to go to school. And so there was always this like criminal element involved right. with everything as well. So you put the pressure of just being like a, really suffering drug addict at the same time as like dealing with this criminal element and just like Mm. a lot of paranoia and a lot of shit going on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just got to the point in, in early 2008, it was January 31st where my two, my two answers were put the gun in the mouth and pull the trigger and end it. Or, and this is like, I call it my first like spiritual experience was Mm -hmm. like, I had a thought that said like, go to AA. Got it. And I don't think that way. I don't know about y'all, but like I've yeah. been told to go to AA since I was 14 by judges and counselors <laughs> right. and everything else. I Everyone. Learned, I learned you could sign your own slip because it's an anonymous program. Yeah. And so like I signed my own slip for, you know, eight years. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> but that thought was crazy to me because it was like, I don't think this way. Why would I be thinking this? And I went in right. February 1st was my original sobriety date of 08. And I went in and begged, I mean, begged someone for help, you mm. know, and right down the street, you know, in Ocean Beach at the clubhouse. And, um, yeah, it was, it was huge. It was huge for me. Bacon street two 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 nine bacon. Yeah. My sponsor used to joke. He used to say, you know, if you're ever looking for the best dope, bro, it's at two, 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 nine bacon street. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, you'd show up and some guys out there, Hey, welcome to the meeting. Yeah. Like, what the? <laughs> and I remember being like, Oh my God, I'll never forget the first guy I saw. And I was like, is this really the rest of my life? And yeah, I didn't have like a, am I going to have fun? Like, yeah, that's such a different thing for me. Like yeah. I was, I was 23 and I hadn't been having fun for probably five or six years. So I was like, I just don't want to kill myself, kill someone else. Mm. Right. Right. Like that's it. And, and can you please help me? Mm. You know? And so. As you guys well know, you know, you get you get busy and you get yeah, you, do. you get beaten into a state of reasonableness and for yeah. the first time in my life I didn't question shit and I didn't say I know and You just I, did. Yeah. Well I walked in a room of people who and I knew everything at twenty three. By the <laughs> way, for all the listeners out there yeah, and yeah. for you guys, I knew everything when I got sober at twenty three. Yeah. The one thing I didn't know is when I walked in a room of men and women and there was something in their eyes and I had no idea what that was. And it was mm-hmm. happiness, yeah. you know, and I, hadn't, and I hadn't felt that for 
probably most of my life. Mm-hmm. And so that was the real profound, like when you get sober and you yeah. look back, you go, holy Whoa. shit. Like what it was, was that like those people were happy and mm-hmm. I didn't, I they didn't had something that you naturally yeah. intent, yeah. organic. Like it was just a way of being yeah, and existing. Correct. Mm. You know? Um, so what, what went down next? You got to work, you started creating this life. Did you get busy? <laughs> like, let's, let's get it. Yeah. Yeah. So a week sober, I get, I get a job. I walk in, I have a, I've built this beautiful fake resume of all these <laughs> management positions that I've had in my, in my career at that point. And all yeah. of it was fake. And, and <laughs> the guy, the guy who owned the catering company, he ripped up my resume in the first interview and said, Hey man, I'm going to give you a job because I believe in the underdog. And I was like, what are you talking, you know, yeah. trying to play it off like I'm what? What the mean? master manipulator. Can you see my resume? He knew right away. Like I was totally full of shit. And, uh, and he gave me a job. And for 15 months, I worked at a catering company during early sobriety. And it like, in a lot of ways, saved my life. Like I needed to learn yeah. how to show up and do a job and get up on time yeah. and all that. And at the same time, Continue. I lost my license for the first time. And since I'd driven, and so I had to take the bus and actually Ashley got yeah. up every morning at 6 a.m. to drive me to work. Holy um, shit, wow. dude! Commitment. So damn, she was. She had your back. Yeah. What yeah, yeah. What were some of the big uh, obstacles or hurdles or like pain points in early sobriety for you that you know you had to kind of dive deep down within in order for you to overcome? I was angry. Okay. I yeah. mean, now, right? Like as I sit here now, what I can say is I wasn't angry. I was scared to death. Right. Yeah. And so. What I did with fear, and I did this my whole life, was I I built up a persona and this outside person that I wanted you to see, which was tough and a fighter and all these things, right? When right. at the end of the day, I was just totally scared. So that was the that was the toughest thing in the rooms is that when I stopped using, I did not have the capability to live life um, or to just, I mean, experience life, get up in the morning and like go through a day right. without having to use something to, to medicate the way that I feel. And so mm. I, th- that was the biggest. I mean, people joke still when I like pick up tokens or whatever, like they'll still joke about like how angry I was when I came in and how I'd sit in the rooms and I'd cuss people out. And I would think that people are talking about me like that, you know, <laughs> yeah. someone's sharing and they must be talking the paranoid, about me. Yeah, the paranoia. Because <laughs> yeah. like, I'm so important. You know, I'm so important. People will be thinking about me the whole meeting. You become like the the center of your own universe. Yeah, 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 exactly. I remember. And so a a lot was that just like dealing with life when you're so angry, but you don't really know why (laughs) you're just so afraid. And so it was like this whirlwind of emotions for about six months. Mm. Um, You think going through the steps, the steps helped you get on the other side of that? (laughs) I mean, I'm not sitting here today without the steps. Yeah, I mean, there's no I mean, again. I I truly believe there's a lot of paths to recovery, mm-hmm. right? Like mine is not go. the only one by any means. Like there's yeah. a yeah. lot of way to go about this. I just found the relief that I have been looking for my whole life in the 12 steps, you know? Um, and so, yeah, my everything changed for me. I don't remember anything changing until I was halfway through amends. Got it. You know, and so what made me like the real kind of key believer in AA was I was like – I did a fist up. I didn't feel anything. Yeah. You know, I did six and seven. I didn't feel anything. Hey, so when I, when I made half my amends, I had this kind of like spiritual shift and, and I didn't know what happened to me. And my spot, I called my sponsor kind of freaking out. Like, Yo, I, what's happening, bro? I yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. And, and he was like, 
look, man, what are you doing right now? And I was like, the step, night step. And he's like, all right, well, why don't you read the night step promises? <laughs> I read those and then like it clicked, yeah. right? I was like, okay, I'm a believer, you know? Yeah. And it yeah. was the first time in my life I felt safe. Got it. That's the best way I've been able to describe the feeling safe. I had. Was safe, I feel secure. Safe. Yeah. Yeah. Unafraid. No yeah. reason to be scared. Correct. Dumb. All the stuff that the nice step promises talked about, like it came true, it happened, and I was like, boom. And then you know, early sobriety, like you catch fire, and then yeah, you're yeah. out there just doing doing just the deal. going for yeah. it and, and getting it, and your foot's on the gas, and right. it doesn't appear that it's really been let up since. No, you know, let's, let's talk about what you're into now and and how you've gotten so, to where you're at. How did you go from catering to starting to work in this field? Was that like an idea that you had? When you got sober, that you wanted to work in this industry, or like, what, was it something that you stumbled upon and fell into, or do you even feel like maybe there was a magnetic pull? No, I fell into this work okay. completely. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean I fell into it. So I fourteen a month, fourteen or so months into into the catering job, I, I got in an argument with my boss over some tips. Mm-hmm. And I walked outside to smoke a cigarette and, and called a buddy of mine who was sponsored by my sponsor. He was yeah. working for a treatment center. And I kind of jokingly said, like, hey, are you guys hiring? Yeah. And he said, yeah, we are. Like, put together your resume and, like, come in an interview for a line staff, you know, like a basic yeah. tech position. I didn't have anything going on. I was 24, you know, like, why not? So I, I put my one job on my resume because at least this time I was sober and, like, could be honest. The yeah. fact that, like, I've had one job in my life. Yeah. And I went in and, and I got hired as a, as a tech and line staff. And I fell in love with, really, at that point, like, crisis-oriented work. Yeah. You know, and I think part of that is, like, looking back, like, where I was at in sobriety, too. You know, I think there was still that element where I wasn't the same person. I didn't want to be that same person, but I still really thrived in, like, that really chaotic environment. Like intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um. And so I've, that's how I fell into it. It definitely was not intentional. Um, <laughs> that's fun. That's a funny by story. By no means. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then you started working in it and you fell in love. Yeah, I did. And I mean, I worked for that first company for two and a half years. I left them and I went to, you know, a treatment center that treated veterans specifically and, um, you know, continued to kind of hone in some of my like direct care work and things like that. And. Um, a year into that job, I decided to open up an intervention company. What what tools or skills along the way have you found to be most effective in supporting you with working with alcoholics and addicts? <sighs> I, mean, I mean, I would say from a professional standpoint, like I, I'm a big believer in the idea that really no degree is going to give you the ability to build a relationship with another mm. human being. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's either innate or it's not. You have it or you don't. You can't, right. you can't teach fake that. it. Exactly. And you yeah. can't fake it. And people know that too. So whether you're in recovery or not, like I don't think that's as important. Right. I think it's like, do you have the ability to build a mutually beneficial relationship? Right. And when we talk about recovery too, you're talking about a group of people, me and us, that like for the most part have been unable to build a reciprocal, intimate relationship with another <laughs> right. human being for however many years we've been using. So that's always a challenge. Um, I would say professionally, that's it. Like, how do we build a relationship and how do you have boundaries and these things? What what helped you with that or supported you? Do you think it was just repetition and being constantly in front of people? Do you think that the catering company helped? Was it, was it, I mean, was there anything, like if you had to break it down into smaller parts, and for someone to try to replicate, like what, what was it? Was it body language? Was it tonality? Was it eye contact? What supported you in, in building these relationships? 
I mean, that's tough. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I I talk about it being somewhat of an innate ability. Um, Mm -hmm. But in terms of being a professional, see, the difference for me is that it's one thing to be in like in the 12 step community and to to be me and to talk 12 step language and be a sponsor, support folks that way. And then there's a whole nother side, which is the professional side. And I learned that really like from different clinicians and different Mm -hmm. counselors who taught me a lot of different ways to work with folks using different techniques and right. um, different modalities of treatment and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is like going out and making tons of mistakes mm-hmm. and then, and then trying to learn from those mistakes. Mm-hmm. Right. So some of the best advice I ever got was like, make the mistakes. If you don't make the mistakes, you're never going to learn. So go out and do things with clients as long as you're not going to hurt someone. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, do no harm, but otherwise make mistakes and see how it works. And then we'll come back and we'll look at that. And if we need to do something different, we'll do it different. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing that I've noticed is to be effective in working with clients. And this is like, it sounds like a no brainer, but sometimes it's not. Is just really caring about the person, right? Like really putting their needs at once and above your own. And, and it's, and I say that and I'm almost, like laughing about it because you would be like, Oh yeah, of course. Like that's part of the job. But in a lot of cases that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's interesting, right? Like you'll hear folks say like, well, when I leave the office, I leave everything there. And I go, well, like, how do you do that? You're dealing with human beings and their lives and their families and all these things. So I, I, I've never got that. Yeah. You know, um, I, I really, I appreciate nothing more than someone taking credit for a failure just as much as they're willing to take credit for a success. Mm, So not running around and going, hey, the last four clients that left here, they've done great. Well, it's like, okay, well, what about the other five that didn't do so well? You know, are you willing to take responsibility for that as well? You know, and that's, I think, some to this like culture shift in treatment is like, when do we as professionals kind of all start taking responsibility for our people getting well or not? Right, right, right. Because they have a part in it. Yeah. Totally get yeah, that. Yeah, no doubt. But we do too. Yeah. And it's not 100% a client, right? Right. Like, right. So, so I, I like that kind of approach you're talking about, Roman. Like, yeah. we take this home with us. It's what we do. Yeah. Like, yeah, man. The, so, three, the, the phone calls at 3 a.m. All of it. Yeah. My phone's on silent. Really. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a mistake, right? You learn. <laughs> you live and you learn. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Chris, where, where did the vision for what you're doing now out in Virginia, where did the, vis- the vision for this start sure so what was the inception yeah no i mean so I, I was i was living on the road 130 days or so a year doing intervention and consulting work all over the country with families and the little company had kind of grown and it was a really exciting time um and i visited i don't know 250 or so treatment centers and had a couple hundred clients that had gone into treatment and followed nice. them for like six months to a year and so i started to really gain like this real like from a from a big picture, what was going on really in the industry as a whole and all yeah. over the Whoa. place. And um, I started getting phone calls about, I guess it's been about two and a half years now, about families that were in need of really like extended care services. So aftercare, housing, you know, outpatient services, things like that in the D.C. area. Right. And having grown up there, it kind of surprised me that there weren't more readily available resources. Right. Mm-hmm. And so – I got this succession of phone calls and kind of thought, huh, like, I wonder if this is something that's meant to be, right? Like, why 
would I get like 10 phone calls in a row about families in need in this specific area? Like the universe directing you. Yeah. And I needed a change too, just to be clear. Living on the road like that was getting pretty difficult. Oh, yeah. Uh, not only for myself, but my marriage and other things. And so I was pretty open to the universe. Like I'm ready for something different. Yeah. Um, and that presented itself. And so then I started kind of putting some thought and I started going out there and kind of looking at the resources that were available and, um, and then it just kind of clicked. It's like, mm. look, it's where I grew up. I left at 19, came out here. I've been out here for 12 years at the time um, and decided, hey, like I need a change. I need to kind of be home as much as I possibly can these mm-hmm. days. I don't want to live on the road anymore. Um, and there's this real need for services for young adults specifically in this area. And right. you start doing research and there's all these things about – having the highest concentration of millennials in the country in the DC area. Yeah, I've seen the Netflix documentary too. Yeah, I mean about that area. Yeah, 11 universities accessible on metro, like all these yeah. other things and you start right. going, man, like how are yeah. how are there not like tons of services here for young people cuz there's such a need. Right. Um and so that was the vision. So that was a part of it and then part of it was I kept watching young adults fail in treatment. Mm. And so having this like chip on my shoulder from the same experience to then going, man, like I'm supporting families and spending 50, a hundred grand in some cases or more on treatment. Yeah. And as soon as they leave, they're back to where they were. And so I started to kind of be like, how much longer am I going to be comfortable kind of referring Mm. in treatment Mm. when the number of good programs was getting smaller and smaller by day? And then this need. And so it was just kind of this perfect storm. And so, damn, we made it happen. Yeah. So we went out, we put a team together. We raised a little bit of money through uh, all friends and family, which was awesome. So we have uh, four family members and three friends that I've known for like 20 years, all invested in the company. And we went out and decided we were going to build this little intensive outpatient program that outgrew itself in the first three months. And and then, you know, as as we mentioned earlier, uh, coming out to now open our residential extended care program as well. So, mm. um, dude, it's so that's it's, it's amazing. It, yeah, it's crazy. It's it's crazy though. I mean, to think about what we were just talking about, you know, and like early sobriety, adolescence, all this to to where it is now. It's 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 baffling to me. And you couldn't have scripted this, right? Like thinking back to where you were when you had sixty days sober. You, and someone was like, hey, what do you think you're going to be in seven, eight years? I mean, I had an ego for sure, but like there's no way that I could have predicted any of this. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. There's no way to script it. I, I don't think there's any way to predict, especially in recovery. I mean, we hear it all the time. You hear right. folks, you know, uh, I could have never expected what I got. I could have never planned for what happened. Right. All these different things. I mean, that's totally my story, you know? But it's a lot of recovery, like listening, paying attention, like what's supposed to happen next. Like, and mm-hmm. the more we can be mindful or mm-hmm. pay attention to that, yeah. then, you know, the universe, at least in my experience, kind of provides a roadmap. Got it. Yeah, man. It's been incredible to watch just the things that you've been doing since I've known you in the last five years. It's been cool, dude. It's been cool. And I know that a lot of people, not to like toot your horn, you certainly don't need anyone to do that for you. <laughs> but I know a lot of a lot of people look at you and look at what you've done and it's inspiring. You know, a lot of people get sober and they end up working in this industry. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a no-brainer for a lot of people. Right. You know, you get sober, most people go through treatment of some sort to get sober and then you find yourself working in a similar environment. So a lot of people end up 
on the same path, but what you've been able to do and the way that you've been able to stay passionate about what you do has been inspiring for myself and others. So I just want to say that a little. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know Ashley will watch this and laugh at the fact that you're saying I don't need someone tooting my horn. She will laugh (laughs) about that for sure. I know. That's why I said it. (laughs) I don't know, man. I mean, I think it's back somewhat to what I talked about earlier with like friends and family, though, and like the people I've been around. Like the universe, I believe, has conspired to put me in different situations and different ways to learn and different people to be around to learn from and all the, and whether it's, learn from in the world of recovery or self-care or professionally or family and friends like in any way yeah and and the thing is i you mentioned earlier the word mentor right like i don't feel like i have a quote-unquote mentor right but i feel like there's been a lot of people in my life that have impacted me really positively Mm. over the years and Mm. i've kind of used the group mentality Mm. the folks to learn from and things like that Um, yeah that's cool man but yeah how how in the world could I be in the position I am today without the people that were around right. me, right? Like your circle. Correct. The people yeah. that have showed up in your life. Exactly. And I use that, men- that word mentorship because I think that mentorship is phenomenal mm-hmm. in just the progressive progression of who you are as a person. No question. And whether that is a group of mentors who, you know, it doesn't have to be like a title or just like one or two people in different facets of life to help you get from where you are to where you want to be. Absolutely. So, so Chris, Dope. what would you say before we wrap this up to uh, anyone who's out there struggling, not sure right now, maybe feeling hopeless, doesn't know where to go. I don't know. Doesn't this could have be an a, answer. A family member mm. or someone who's trying to get sober. Again, such a such. You guys have great questions. Mm-hmm. I think this is what happens when you do a podcast for a period of time. I have a lot of folks on here that you got good questions to ask. Um, well, it's innate. It just comes naturally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nobody either, taught. Nobody can teach you. <laughs> you either have it or you don't, Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, for me, it's. I always go back to the idea of like how do we, how do we connect with folks that are really suffering, you know? And I think with with addiction in particular and mental health, there's so much frustration, there's so much anger, there's so much fear and confusion and all this that surrounds it that a lot of times it's really paralyzing for folks. So it's very difficult to kind of remain objective or unbiased and like how do I look at my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife, whatever it is? How do I look at them and not have as much kind of emotion tied into this to, mm. so that I can look at like what decisions are good and how do I need to take care of myself in order to help another person, you know, and trust me, I've had a lot of people say that this is a terrible analogy, but I agree with it. Like when the, you know, if, if the air pressure in an airplane goes off, like you put your own air mask on first mm-hmm. and then you put it on your child. Right. Yeah. And so I think, for people who are listening that are struggling, especially with a loved one, it's like, how do we, how do I take care of my own emotion and my own self so that I can actually help this person? And how do I look at what we're doing and is it working or not working? Yeah. Right. And I think that's so important. You know, I'm not, I'm a, I hate stigma and I hate labels and all that. I never use it. It's like, look, is what you're doing being helpful? Is it effective or not? Or not. Yeah. And if it's not, it, it may not be easy but you got to look at how do we do it differently, yeah. right? And that yeah. can just be the way we communicate with each other, mm-hmm. the way that we hold people accountable and boundaries and whatever it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, so I'm a big fan for like loved ones, like get involved, like get involved in the recovery community, get involved in support groups, get involved in reading, get involved with professionals. Like there are people out there that can guide and support and help during that process. And when it comes to the individual, it's like, look, I, I just, I get it. I mean, the toughest thing I think is like, if, if, if someone were to say this guy has nine years sober, um, I would have, with a month or a day or not sober, I would have been like, that dude's full of shit. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no way. Like, he either didn't use like me, he didn't drink like me, he didn't live the life I lived. Like, there's no way that the two equate. Like, you can't be this person and then this person, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I always think, look, like, if, if you're at a point where life has gotten to be too much, life has gotten to be to a point where decisions that are happening are lengths of time in jail mm-hmm. what treatment center what family member have i lost this week what relationship right. just went away the just pain and suffering mm. and misery of living right like at some point when that outweighs um you know the desire to keep using then it's like then we can make a choice to do something different um and so I think there's a ton of paths to recovery. I mean, I know people that go to church or do yeah. celebrate recovery, like Christian-based 12-step. They do yoga, meditation, mindfulness. They yeah. do smart recovery. They Some people just stop using. You yeah. know I mean? Like there's also, yeah. you know, and so I, there isn't one defined route. And I think one one thing for folks that are listening to this that might be in that position is like, don't get caught up in people talking about 12 step. Don't yeah. get caught up in people talking about AA. Like if you've had an experience with a 12 step community that hasn't been that positive and you don't want to check that out again, like there's a, a whole lot of other Dude, stuff that yeah. can be positive. Yeah. You know? Um, and so I think it's like, look, the three of us I know in this room, like we get it. Yeah. Um, and it may be tough to look at the three of us and go, man, those guys get it. I mean, Roman looks more like, you know, a, a criminal and stuff what? like that. So, how uh, dare you? <laughs> wow. I thought you were going to say He's handsome. He looks like a stud. He looks sharp. A criminal. People can relate with Roman really well, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they can't see your nice tattoos, Brian. So, yeah, um, it's all right. I'll take it. I know. <laughs> I know. He's a bad cop. I come in playing good, good cop. Good cop, bad cop. Let me yeah, ask you works. a question real quick, Chris. Are people who have afflictions with addiction and alcoholism, are they broken? Do they need to be fixed? Hell no. No. I mean, in my opinion, not really my opinion, but people are sick. Yeah. You know, um, I think we're sick people who are trying to get well, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I think it's so hard to look at because the things we do when we're using impact other people in fucked up. really negative ways. Yeah. And so when you tell if, when you tell someone like, look, this is no different than like heart disease or diabetes. They can't, they can't even. They're like, no, 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 no. Like you're so full of shit. Like right. there's, it's not the same. Like you know? he, he wouldn't steal out my purse if he had heart disease. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, even I've been using, I've been using, uh, lung cancer, which has been a good example, right? Like at some point someone chose to pick up a cigarette. They weren't addicted immediately. Right. But what happened is when they kept smoking, they got addicted to nicotine. They, as a result of that, developed cancer long-term. What do we do when someone gets lung cancer? Man, I'm, you know, we're here, we're here for you. Our family's yeah. going to be here for you. Can we help you? Can we bring stuff over? Can we go fund me you? What can we do to help you, right? Now, that person 
looks the exact same as most people with like addiction to drugs. Right. But we don't treat it the same. Self-inflicted. Correct. Right. So like lung cancer self-inflicted, right? Pretty much. Yeah, it but, is. It, but yeah. it's an addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but we treat the person with lung cancer very differently than we treat the person. Well, I think it's addiction. because you can, you're like, okay, this person's going to die probably. Mm-hmm. Whereas with addiction, it's like, I think the majority of the public don't understand that how deadly it is, how fatal it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, fatal and progressive illness. Right. So, right. well, especially with with on the streets now. Oh, I mean, good God! And whether man. it's just like the fentanyl that's in everything now, um, that's even being laced like in cocaine now. I've heard weed. random stories. Weed, yeah, like, yeah. that fentanyl is killing people in droves. It's crazy. That then, like benzos aren't being looked at. Right, like, there's a lot right. of people dying right now of Xanax and all this other stuff. They're starting to press their own pills, and right, yeah, it's because crazy. opioids yeah. is the big media story. We're not hearing a lot about this other stuff. Right, and I'll yeah. tell you, like in the D.C. area, where like there's a lot of expectations for kids, all this, like we're seeing more benzo use, alcohol use, like downer use. That's not opiate and opioid related. Yeah. So it's kind of wild to be like, mm-hmm. man, like yeah. more of our population is dealing with this stuff than even the opioids right now. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Well, I have one question before we leave. And this is a question that is very, very important. Imagine you had, what are you laughing at? I just got a feeling with that, like interlude or that prelude that it's going to be something interesting. It is. Now imagine, if you will, you have a Walkman. Do you remember Walkmans? I do, actually. Remember, you, imagine you have a Walkman and you can only listen to one album for the rest of your life. Th- this is the stuff that people really want to know. What album would that be? Wow. Yeah. Walkman, too. So it's got so to be a tape. Yeah. It's got to be tape or are you talking about CD, too? Either or. Probably tape because then it's not skipping as much when you're cruising around. Yeah. Well, also I ask about tape because back in the day, if you had like two CDs, oh, you, got, you, you could do double. you could yeah. do the double side of tape, so that would help. Okay. You know, with some of that. Um, what do you got, man? I, I I go back to a lot of the stuff I listened to like before I even started using, but like has like Tupac has always spoken to me. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's just that I grew up in like the golden age of hip hop or what it is. Rest in peace. Um, but Tupac's music has always spoken to me. Um, and so I would probably go, it's so hard to say, like, I think Me Against the World. Oh. I think I would go with Me Against the okay. World as an album. Wow. Um, I, I, was, I thought you were going to say All Eyes on Me. Well, I was sitting here going, is it All Eyes on Me or. Yeah. Or me against the world. But me against the world, I don't know, just from start to finish. It's just raw. Or, Correct. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's a little earlier, you know, in his development. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I always go back. Like, My man. there's a variety of different kind of Tupac stuff. Nice. Um, but, you know, any early 90s hip hop yeah. too. Like, I could do all right with Illmatic or, ah, okay. you know, yeah, Reasonable nice. Reasonable Dow, yeah. you know, Jay-Z. or the early Biggie stuff or yeah. some of that. But I would say me against the world is probably the one album. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Chris, where can people find you? What's your center called? Boy, Encore Recovery Solutions. Okay. In Arlington, Virginia. Um, yeah. Check them out. They're the hottest thing on the block. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah, block so you can find hot. me you can find me there. Uh Chris Bennett Interventions is the intervention company that's still yeah. around. So shout out find, Chris Bennett. Find me out there. Cool. Um, yeah. No doubt. Right on, well, Chris. I appreciate well, you for stopping being by. On. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Super grateful for you guys, man. Really, really appreciate the chance. And it's been another episode of the Sober Life Audio Experience. The Specialty Produce app is the world's number one handheld resource on produce. The app features photographs, recipes, geography and history, taste and culinary applications on over 1,900 produce items. From apples to zapote, we've got your produce questions answered. Our app is available for both iPhone and Android. Download our app for free today.